Hey everyone, this is Paul Steinmetz with a special edition of WCSU 411. We thought it would be cool to give you a taste of our greatest hits from the past several months, so we're going to give you excerpts from interviews with professors, coaches, alumni, and a bunch of others who have connected with the university. This podcast started after executive producer Scott Volpe screamed across the quad at me one day saying, Hey, Paul, do you want to do a podcast? I said yes. And as you will hear, we had quite a number of interesting topics. We're going to keep it going too, so please subscribe and listen to every podcast. Go to WCSU Media at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. We'd love to hear from you. And now, our greatest hits podcast. Forrest Robertson is a Westcon alum who went to Dartmouth to earn his PhD, and he returned here to teach chemistry. His specialty is organic chemistry, which most students dread. But Dr. Robertson developed a cool way to make the information more interesting and digestible. With regard to the organic course, right, it is this course that all biology majors must take, chemistry majors must take, uh, medical students or pre-med students must take. And so uh, there is this stigma that is associated with the organic chemistry course. So they think it is impossible to uh, succeed in this course, that it's going to be possible to achieve that A, that, that desired A. And so with that said, um, I've had quite a bit of experience teaching uh, undergraduates at Dartmouth uh, College, where I did my graduate work, also doing uh, adjunct work here before I actually got the full-time position in 2014. And now that I'm teaching as a full-time professor here in the department, what I noticed with regard to the students and their preparedness for the laboratories was that there was no preparedness. We gave them the experimental handouts. We asked them to read this material. We gave them everything. And they would come in, and there would be this blank stare. You'd ask them a question. I like engaging my students while I'm in the laboratory with them. And there would be this lack of interaction and engagement. So what I thought is, somehow, would I be able to pique their interest before they came into the lab? And what I thought is, maybe I could create, develop uh, this narrative of the young chemist is what I call him. And what this narrative entails is this story of this one young man who starts out at the trailhead of his journey and uh, he meets a few mentors uh, along the way uh, who help him develop his skills so he's a successful organic chemist. And uh, so, yeah, so the narrative of the young chemist is, uh, is developed in a way that there are nine installments, because there are nine experiments that they do uh, in the organic uh, lab in semester one. And so the cool thing about it is that because it is a serial nature, there are these nine installments, the students actually anticipate, they look forward to the next installment. And so... As I presented the material, they would then for sure read the, the narrative of the young chemist, which would then lead them into then reading then the actual experimental handout for that day and for that experiment of the week. And it actually worked. And so the students were coming in. They were much more prepared. There were obviously the, some, some students that were still not 
doing all of the work, but for the majority of the students, they were all reading uh, the, the handouts, they were prepared. They were even sharing the stories with their coworkers, say if they were an EMT, they were sharing it with their co- coworkers there. And so it was great to get the feedback from the students and saying, wow, I definitely uh, like these stories. They are sort of engaging me with the experimental handout, excuse me. Um, And they uh, were prepared for the lab for that day. And so thankfully it has worked. The end of the semester uh, evaluations that we give out, uh, one of the questions that we asked is, should this be continued? Was it helpful? And the students overwhelmingly uh, said that it should be. Mitch Wagner has spent his teaching career doing research with students on many areas of biology, including invasive species in Candlewood Lake, the ecology of soil, and the critters who live in the stone walls that line New England. He has lately become an expert on global warming and explains why he has given dozens of lectures in the community on this subject. You don't want to blow smoke. You don't want to to give them a false sense of everything's going to be fine, kumbaya and all that stuff. It's not unicorns. This is the most important thing that it's happened in human civilization since that ice age melted. And we're going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And we will in some fashion. We can do it the easy way or the hard way. It's like, you know, I don't know if your mother was like my mother. If you, you were doing something you weren't supposed to do and, and, and your mom said, you know, we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. I don't know if you ever had that experience. Mm-hmm. I did. And um, I think a lot of kids do at some point. And that's true. That's a life lesson that, you know, um, the world isn't going to fix itself. Well, I mean, it will gradually, but we won't be around for mm-hmm. it. Um, I would rather be around for it. And so I'm going to do everything I can going forward for as long as I'm around. Westcon nursing professor Mary Ellen Doherty has written two books with her co-author about nurses who have served in the military during America's most recent wars. She discussed the conditions they endured, the dangers they worked through, and how their lives changed when they returned home. A big reason why we did this research was we wanted to give nurses a voice because when you pick up the newspaper or turn on the news, you would hear about the soldiers, sailors, Marines, um, guard units, whatever, and, and that's wonderful. We want to hear about them, but nurses were rarely mentioned. You never hear about yeah, them. Yeah, never. And, um, you know, you didn't see pictures in the newspaper, you didn't see a thank you, um, and you'd see people, injured people coming back, and you knew that the effort of the nurses had an impact on their health, but yet nobody mentioned it. It was almost like nurses were the invisible warriors, Mm -hmm. and they also were in harm's way. Going only by appearances, students might think they have little in common with Dr. John Clark, the president of Westcon. But if they get to know him, they will find that Dr. Clark stays in touch with his own search for identity and that he especially understands the experience of discrimination. 
Well, it's the same meaning different human beings from different backgrounds. And, and there should be that sense of delight that here's somebody who thinks differently than me. This is the true sense of democracy. We want different perspectives. Because if it's all the same, it will stagnate. And also a, a lot of you know, the bigotry, a lot of the prejudice, when you actually meet someone from a different background face to face, and you say, you know what, this is a, a really nice, smart person, all of a sudden that tends to evaporate. And this is the, the true American spirit. I mean, there, there is no such thing as an, an Irish-American only, uh, or Italian, or a black uh, American, or Hispanic-American, or Lebanese-American here in Danbury, Brazilian. I mean, just go on. We are the world. If there's United Nations, we are it, and that's what we should celebrate at the university mm -hmm. and, and, and give our students the opportunity to meet other students from different backgrounds, and that is the future of America. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's one of the strengths of the university. All our students aren't the same as they are at some places. Uh, and I understand, in your case, the uh, pride for uh, where you grew up, the Bronx, and your religion, being Catholic. I never have quite got this uh, Irish thing. Isn't Ireland kind of like a little spit of gravel in the North Atlantic? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, um, it's an interesting story. You know, People who, uh, who are listening who are college football fans will certainly know the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame University, who had a pretty bad season last year. Uh, but... The explanation of the terminology is, is very interesting and to the point we're discussing uh, because there was a, 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 a certain interview with a Holy Cross father who was a priest at the University of Notre Dame. He said, people should not think that the fighting Irish just simply means the Irish. It's that we, we should remind ourselves the difficulties when Irish immigrants first came to this country. Uh, meeting with prejudice and, and bigotry and all the difficulties they, they had and being looked down upon. Uh, and that, uh, that the fight is, is really, even though it, it's used in, in football terms, the fight is really for civil rights and, and respect for all groups. And never forget where you came from, never forget what you had to struggle, and were there other groups in the similar struggle uh, that you should be allied in helping and assisting them you know, in America here. Because again, we're part of the American dream. And so whatever your background, you know, especially on St. Patrick's Day, you're fighting Irish, but it could be fighting anything, but fighting for right, fighting what is just, and fighting for those causes we all believe in. Mm -hmm. And the Irish were treated pretty badly for a long time here in America, the immigrants. Are... Right. And, I mean, unfortunately, we have a history that certainly, you know, black Americans know, Hispanic Americans know, Jewish Americans know. I mean, certainly, you uh, know, throughout, you know, the centuries. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, the great dreams of America, where we can finally get to a point where a citizen is a full citizen with all, you know, with equal rights. And just reading our Constitution and, and our, uh, certainly our Declaration of Independence. Wendell Miner is an internationally renowned illustrator who showed his work with several others in an exhibit in Westcon's art gallery. Miner described how he started out in, New in a New York shop before going out on his own, and he had advice for art students who are starting their careers. I would grab any job that's remotely related to art and take it, no matter how little the salary or maybe you can be... Uh, an intern somewhere 
uh, be be willing to give away your time to learn because getting out of school is just the beginning. Um, you know, it's it's you've accomplished that much, but you know, it's all about what you can do, not the sheet of paper that you get for a degree, um, and and that's true primarily in art more than any other any other creative process. Dave Smith taught percussion at Westcon for more than 30 years. He was also known as the nicest person on campus. We talked about that, his background, and also he gave a tutorial on how to play the triangle, which is one of his favorite instruments. So I've been to some concerts, and I always assume that the kid playing the triangle is the one that you're mad at or <laughs> is being punished for something. Yeah. Uh, well, sometimes that might be true, but <laughs> no, I don't know. It, it's, uh, it's a great instrument, and I, uh, that I remember, and I always tell my, my percussion workshop, I remember the specific time that I really enjoyed the sound of the triangle and what I was playing and what instrument, I, what triangle I was using at the time and why it all of a sudden sounded so wonderful to me. Mm. And, and I was already out of college. And I was playing Carmina Burana by Carl Orff. And this little triangle part, along with the woodwinds, all of a sudden it just added a sparkle that I, for some reason, hadn't noticed before. And it's just, it's, it's a great instrument. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's not really easy to play. Everybody thinks it's just so easy but mm -hmm. to play some of the some of the orchestral literature is very, very difficult, very challenging. You know, so. It does look, because it's a triangle and you have one little metal... Uh, oh, beater. Beater, yeah. So uh, is it difficult because you have to figure out where in the triangle to touch where, it? And, where, uh, where, where to touch it, because you touch it and play it and, and one side of it, it's certain sound, on the other side, it's hmm. different sound. How to play sustained sounds, rolling... Um, and how we're going to play the rhythms that are, that are there. Mm. So if they're very fast rhythms, you have to decide, are you going to do one hand one with one beater, or are you going to hang it up and use two beaters? And again, that creates different problems of sound. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all, always uh, it's an interesting dilemma. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's one that is not uh, often thought of. But uh, there are a couple of funny... Uh, Things on on YouTube with ones with Bernstein getting really upset with triangle players, <laughs> and uh, another one where some some guy who, who's I forget who it is, but somebody who is well fairly well known as, as a uh, speaker and an actor decided to to find out what it was like to play the play triangle, and I think it was with the, with the New York Philharmonic they allowed him to play this this part one mm -hmm. time in a, in a rehearsal and. Uh, and then they were video, videotaping it, and it was just really funny how nervous he got and everything. So it's really, really funny. I mean, sometimes you'll have one note to play, and you sit there and you start talking to yourself, and what if I miss this note? <laughs> you know, so, but it's, it's interesting. I had no idea that it could be so complex. That's yeah. interesting. Jimmy Green teaches jazz saxophone in the music program, and every year he organizes a concert to raise money for a scholarship in honor of his daughter, Anna Grace, who was murdered at Sandy Hook School five years ago. In this interview, Jimmy also taught us a little bit about how to live our lives. 
in our own ways, we've tried to do things that are honoring of uh, our daughter Anna's life. She was a beautiful child, uh, a wonderful uh, human being, someone who uh, was very loving and, and very sweet and warm and kind, uh, very intelligent, very talented, um, very musical. So we've tried in, in whatever ways that, you know, we're able to do things that reflect uh, how beautiful um, her life was when she was here with us. And we know that the only thing, you know, in a, in a big picture, and we can discuss a whole lot of uh, ways that our society, our country, our world uh, can be better so that instances of uh, gun violence and violence in general like this are reduced. Um, but over overall, I really feel like we've arrived at the 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 biggest thing is love. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest thing we can ever do, the greatest thing we can ever do on this earth is love others and love ourselves and love each other. So we've we've tried, and Anna did that. She loved herself. She mm-hmm. was very proud of who she was. She was proud of being African-American and Puerto Rican, and we lived in Canada for a while, and she thought herself, you know, we moved there when she was three. Mm-hmm. We lived there for three years, so she thought of herself as, as Canadian, too. So mm-hmm. she was proud of all those things. She loved herself. She was not a bashful, shy child. She was very comfortable in her own skin, and uh, she loved others. She knew how to express love uh, to her family, to her friends, and everybody felt it that was around her, so... Um, if she could love and, you know, in the short time that she was here, then the least we can do is try to embrace that, you know, in her absence. Shu Hua Chi is chair of the English department here at Westcon. He grew up in China before it became the economic powerhouse it is today, and he's taught here for 17 years. Most recently, he has studied how American literature helped open China to the West and demonstrates that art can not only affect the heart, but also change the world. So that's drama, you know, and, and that's why I believe in drama. I don't mean, uh, I don't believe in uh, doing literature or drama just pure for the propaganda or, you know, manipulative and whatever, but I, uh, purpose, but I believe in drama and theater have a place in the social, cultural, political life of the society. It's not pure art for art's sake. Even though if some people want to pursue that, that's fine. But even in that art for art's pursuit itself is a political statement in itself. It awakens people, right? Oh yeah, oh absolutely. We're very proud of our athletic tradition at WestCon. Although we compete in Division Three, our teams are competitive and successful. Football coach Joe Loft discusses some of the keys to winning. Coaching a football team and trying to win games is a constant, uh, you know, readjustment during the season of figuring out who your best players are and what plays you need to run and how do you stop this. And what it comes down to is some pretty simple things. Uh, you know, if you can run the ball better than your opponent that week, you usually win. If you win the turnover ratio, uh, you know, have less than them, you usually win. 
And uh, and then you, if you're great on special teams, which we're on Saturday, that was the deciding factor. We won turnovers. We won special teams. They ran the ball better, and, and those kind of add up to wins for you. So, you know, all in all, we're excited that we won, but we know uh, we've been saying it since the first day. Uh, we still got to get better, and if we don't get better, we're not going to continue to win. Following on the athletic theme, Kim Ribsick, the coach of women's basketball, stresses academics in this interview, as do all our coaches. She talks about the team placing high in the National Academic Top 25 Team Honor Roll for the first time this year. They're also burning it up on the court. Um, This is one of probably the most significant honors um, that we've received as a team here during my tenure um, in the last 15 years. we talk about academics on a daily basis. We preach it. We, we make sure they have the right support. Um, and every year, you know, we've, we've been strong, you know, year in and year out academically, we've been strong, but to actually, you know, make the top 25 for the WBCA in the country in division three, um, was also something we've talked about, but it's just such a tough task. And for the, the fact that they not only did it for the first time, uh, together, but top 10 is truly amazing. I think this just ranks right up there with anything that we could possibly achieve on the court. Mm-hmm. Is that how you feel, Emma? That it ranks the same as what you could do, like winning a championship? Um, yes, and in some cases, I think it almost goes further because when it comes to your grades and your education, I think that's almost what could get you further in life with certain jobs that you apply for. But I also think that being on a team and a part of a team is also an important skill to have on a resume as well. Hmm. Caitlin, did uh, was the academic outlook here at Westcon one of the th- reasons, one of the things you considered when you joined the team or came to Westcon and uh, joined the team? Um, I actually had the opportunity to meet with Dr. Cook, the honors director, when I visited here, and he's an amazing man, and it's an amazing honors program we have. And I could tell that when I was being recruited, that coach really valued academics, which was super important to me because we are student athletes. And when I met the team, the environment you can tell is really supportive and it proved to be so in my three years so far here. Although teaching is our professor's first job, most also conduct academic research, which informs their classroom work and also many times benefits the community. Education professor Teresa Canada surveyed parent surveyed <laughs> education professors Teresa Canada surveyed parents of preschool students to find out how engaged they are in their children's education and what they seek from the school system. Basically what we're trying to see is usually the typical situation that exists for educators is that the teacher and or administrators inform t- parents as to what may be best for their child as they prepare them for early childhood education and as they enter the system. What I want to find out is to basically say what do parents view as important for them from their perspective for preparing their child in terms of quality education in early childhood situations. So that's good for parents to know. Oh, absolutely. But the thing is, it's also good for teachers and teachers, teacher preparation programs to know about this as well. Um, because if you start with children at this age, it's better, they're better prepared as they enter kindergarten, first grade through sixth grade and so forth. So I believe that it's important that we start at an earlier age as opposed to waiting until a child enters the school system. Right. 
Professor Gabe Lomas won the largest grant in university history when the Centers for Disease Control awarded $1.8 million to help psychology students work in the community and develop protocols that will help people deal with mental trauma and illness. Another um, um, benefit of, of having counselors in primary care is that we catch in mental health problems earlier. So when you're constantly screening for depression, anxiety, substance abuse, things like that, you'll catch it much earlier and get treatment earlier, which, which studies show uh, uh, that um, we can reduce um, not only costs, but also mental illness down the road and, and perhaps um, reduce some of the um, consequences of, of more severe mental illness if we catch it early. So catch, you know, reducing stigma is a big deal, I think, and, and, and catching mental, mental illness early, it's also it, it's a big deal, too. So the grant's going to really help to advance our region in that area. At WestCon, we say that our students and graduates can achieve any goal they strive for. Scott Brungis is a great example of that. He entered WestCon thinking he would be either a radio disc jockey or an airline pilot. He developed his skills and today is the founder and CEO of a national multimedia company, which gives him time with his wife, Tracy, to make the world a better place. And he talks about that here. Uh, Warren Buffett says that we, you know, you, Paul, me, we all won the ovarian lottery. So, you know, we were born to, you know, in the United States and had the opportunity to go to Westcon or wherever we all went to school. And, uh, but these people, we could have been born anywhere. And these people were born in a situation that they don't have that opportunity. So um, we both kind of fell in love with the idea. And um, so we uh, connected with an organization called uh, World Vision. And uh, we chose Honduras because it's not on the other side of the earth. Um, and there's great need there um, and the potential to make an impact. Um, so what we're doing is we're, uh, it's, it's, it is that third prong of why we exist as a company. And um, so we've made a, a three-year financial commitment to a community in Honduras called uh, Pueblo Viejo. Um, and the, uh, here it's, it's, a community of 250 people on top of a mountain and here they have no running water uh, they do have electricity uh, it's it's pretty sad the way they live and we're uh, over the next three years uh, we'll be installing not we but through world vision they'll be installing they have what they call the wash program so they'll be installing a pretty sophisticated water system uh, so all 250 people in the community will now have water either in their house or within a 10-minute round-trip walking distance, so clean, potable water. Um, and, uh, and then the relationship will... Uh, oh, they also teach them about sanitation health. So it's water, washes, water, and sanitation health. Mm. And the impact that, uh, that they themselves have on the watershed, you can't just defecate anywhere... You can't throw your garbage anywhere because it comes back and it, you know, uh, impacts the watershed. Um, and then uh, after the first three years, uh, when the system is up and running, then they get into what they call the thrive phase. 
And the whole purpose of uh, World Vision, or their part of their their whole vision, is to um, help people achieve a higher level of economic independence. So, um, you know, with the water system in place, uh, they they won't have to spend, you know, half their lives just collecting water. Uh, they uh, the system will also help them with irrigation. So then they get into um, teaching them about um, crop diversity and crop yield, uh, and opening up different markets. Um, so it's a pretty impressive program uh, that has incredible long-term success. We can say with 100% confidence that Air Force Major Matt Elmore is the only Westcon graduate to pilot the fabled U-2 reconnaissance plane. Matt describes his Westcon experience as one of the best of his life. And in this podcast, he described what it's like to fly a U-2. Our biggest threats don't, I mean, there are threats from uh, where we operate in the countries that we operate near um, that don't like us, uh, obviously. But that's not really, we have to know how to deal with it. Um, and we have tactics to deal with it. But the real threat comes from just flying the plane itself. It's, it's, it was a plane designed in the 50s. Uh, built in the 60s, but the ones we fly were all built in the 80s. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a modernized aircraft. It, it really is. Um, some of the avionics are, are kind of outdated, uh, but it's it's got a lot of pretty solid avionics. Um, but you're operating in, in near the edge of space. Uh, so it's the highest threat, I think, is anything that, that goes wrong with the aircraft and you lose pressurization. Um, it's just being a human being, the, the whole needing to breathe, needing, you know, uh, needing to live, um, that is, it's, it's probably the highest threat. Mm -hmm. Um, something goes wrong with the aircraft. It takes 45 minutes to get down. Mm. It's not like any other aircraft. It's, it wants to fly because the wings are, are so big. Um, and it, there's not a lot of drag on it, uh, drag slowing down, descending kind of thing. Um, so when we want to descend, we throw our gear down, put our speed brakes out that, that kind of, uh, adds drag in, in the slipstream, but it still takes 45 minutes plus to get down from 70,000 feet. It takes a long time. So if you have anything that goes wrong in the aircraft, um, and you lose pressurization or, you know, you have an engine failure, uh, engine failure is a big deal, but not a huge deal because you have where we operate so high and it takes so long to get down. You have a lot of time to think, where should I put this? Um, but that's still a potential, uh, uh threat. Uh, I think at that altitude, probably in my mind, at least the biggest threat is, is losing pressurization or something going wrong with the life support system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 45 minutes is too long to, Oh yeah. You can't live through that. Right. Even, I mean. even ejecting from that altitude, if you, if something goes wrong from you eject and your emergency action system, that's part of this, the system, the ejection system doesn't work. You still have, uh, I want to say four or five minutes of free fall before your parachute opens and mm. you're, you're in a sealed suit. So if you can't breathe, I mean, that's, right. you can't hold your breath for four or five minutes. Mm -mm. Have you ever had to eject from some point? No. Yeah, you don't want to. <laughs> As I understand, from what I've read, it's not a, a fun thing. No, I, I, I do like skydiving, but that's I, uh, ejecting is the last thing you want to do. Yeah, because um, you're kind of blowing it. You're putting a bomb beneath you to blow yourself out of the right. Plane, right? It's it's inherently dangerous, but it's 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 basically the last. If everything's gone wrong to the point where there's nothing you can do to recover from whatever situation you're in, that's that's what ejection's for. It's not. Yeah. Right. So. Hmm. And so, obviously, you're at peace with that. You're willing to, um, you know, you're putting your life on the line every time you go up, really, right? Yeah, but it's, it's fun. I mean, it's fun. And yeah. that, 
it pays well and it's it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. and I work with great people so it's it's worth it Allison Voss knew she wanted to teach and she took advantage of everything Westcon had to offer as a senior honors student, she was awarded a prestigious Fulbright scholarship that sent her to Estonia for the past semester. She talks about her hopes for the future and what she plans to do with her Western Connecticut State University education. In the last few years, I've started traveling and really have fallen in love with that and was looking for a way to kind of uh, combine the two interests and keep doing what I love. Uh, I took a AP human geography class senior year of high school and I absolutely loved the class and it was all about how do ideas move how do how do education rates impact birth rates impact the country's economics and just thinking back to that I started thinking you know maybe there is a way to tie this all together and I started looking into master's programs and found there was so that's the hope Well, I want to say at the end that I really appreciate how everybody has tuned in and listened to the podcast. I thank you for your support and the support of uh, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, our producers. As you know, they, this uh, podcast wouldn't happen without them. And uh, this is our last podcast of 2017. We'll be back in early 2018. Happy holidays, everyone, and we'll see you soon.